0: This is a Tech Briefs Media Group podcast. Welcome to another Who's Who at NASA podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Leslie Bebout, microbial ecologist at Ames Research Center. Leslie, thanks for being with us. First question, just to set the stage, what does a microbial ecologist do?
1: We started studying these microbes because they're the earliest forms of life on planet Earth. They're the kind of things we're looking for, either remnants of cells themselves or um, indicators that they were there on Mars. Uh, we also look at gases in the atmospheres of far distant planets to see if we get indications of life processes there. So that that's the historical basis uh, for study of microbiology and microbial ecology at NASA. Um, furthermore, on Earth what is transformative about the microbes is that they developed, in particular the cyanobacteria, developed the process of photosynthesis, and that was, people kind of overlooked how profound that was, that that is the conduit by which all of the solar energy, a huge amount of the solar energy hitting the planet, well actually actually it's a small amount, but it's still transformative, gets turned from Electromagnetic energy into chemical energy. And that basically is what makes Earth different from the other planets. It's that capture of that light energy into chemical bonds that are continuously being broken and reformed and transformed. And the microbes are just fantastically diverse uh, and they are carrying out transformations that literally run the planet. All of our oxygen, all of our carbon, all of our nitrogen, all of our hydrogen goes through these microbial pathways. And um, it's a profound life support system. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for those, those processes. So those are, we, you know, that's a, a very large amount of things that I'm talking about, but we, we study small parts of that at, at um, different points in time and focus on particular aspects. And in recent years, because of that uh, transformative and uh, pivotal role that the microbes have, they've been increasingly of interest also for uh, green energy for just that reason. They produce lipids, they produce uh, hydrogen, methane, um, and of the lipids, they, you know, petroleum, all of our petroleum, the diesel, the alkanes, the kerosene, gasoline, all had microbial origins as well as hydrogen, natural gas, methane, um, and oxygen, and hydrogen, all which are also fuels. Um, so that's an important part. And then for space applications, about 20 years ago, three years ago, um, there was a lot of emphasis on using these biological supports to keep humans alive in space. And then it was kind of thought that um, that was pretty hard to do. It's complicated if you have a fish tank. You know things don't always go the way they want <laughs> you mm-hmm. want them to in your tank. So that, for a while, was abandoned in turn and in favor of more short-term uh, physical and chemical methods for life support, which uh, had high reliability and were very um, well defined. And and those have worked really well. The problem there is resupport. Uh, it costs about ten thousand dollars to get a standard bottle of water into space, and if you are going out longer than a year or more, are the projections you have to start recycling, and you can't even resupport your physical and chemical systems fully. So there's kind of a, a stepping back towards thinking that uh, we're going to have to start again thinking about biology for life support in the future. It's it's in the distant future. But we have to start taking the steps now in order to be ready for that, and to have those systems integrate with the engineering so that they work well together.
0: Is that what you're working on currently, uh, or is it? How does it rank with uh, priority as far as using green algae to create green technologies versus um, using uh, growing algae in space?
1: Well, you know, our day job is still the basic. Um, Microbiology for astrobiology, exobiology, that's the core. But um, through the past few years, uh, we've been working with folks at Lawrence Livermore National Lab uh, with funding from the Department of Energy to um, look at hydrogen cycling in these microbial ecosystems that we've known for 20 years for other reasons. Because we had all that uh, knowledge, we were able to use their technologies and um, and tools that we don't have at NASA, and that's been a, a really good partnership. So I would say that project is about uh, a third of our time, exobiology-based projects are still about 50 uh, percent of our time, and then there's this other little percentage of time that we have to uh, kind of reach out into these other areas, such as um, looking at modern day Fuel uh, needs and, and where NASA technologies or partnerships could or basic biology knowledge could be useful in those areas. Because we do have that mandate to look and see if there's areas where uh, what we do could be of use.
0: Yeah, can you go and tell a bit more about uh, the modern day fuel needs?
1: Oh, let's see. Um, I guess about five or six years ago, um, we were. Um, given a a bit of a window to go out and talk with people in the industry, and what we did was we went out and talked to as many commercial growers as we could and as many people in uh, different academic and federal labs and kind of network. I think at that point um, there might have been a little perception of of, you know why is NASA interested in this, you know, is it just kind of jumping on the bandwagon? But I was able, in uh, many times, to say, no, we've, you know, we've been studying all of this, these microbial transformations for a long time, uh, and we want to use them eventually for space applications. So if there's things we know that can be helpful, we want to provide those. In the other sense, we want to see what is happening now that this realm has exploded in the past 10 to 15 years to see what developments are happening there that we can pull back for NASA mission needs as well. So that was really a pretty exciting um, and different from our our regular work to to make those contacts. And and those um, have remained viable, and we uh, keep in touch with people in the the industry and also at other federal labs. And we're just keeping the awareness level up, I would say. Mm
0: -hmm. And what is sort of a, a typical day for you?
1: It's, it's kind of variable with time of year. Sometimes of year um, there's an emphasis on um, working on the projects that we have funded and making big progress on those. And then there's other phases that turn with a focus to um, proposal preparation to look out for new funding. And then in the summer months, like we have right now, we have a lot of interns in the lab and that's the only time we have, uh, we usually have one or two interns, but in the summer that swells to, to maybe seven or more. And during that phase, we're working with the interns to either plug them into projects we have ongoing or in some cases. Uh, kind of reaching out and getting some seed funding and um, some seed data in new areas that we might want to propose to you in the future but you need to get a little preliminary data on and uh, folks in our group also have a lot of um, emphasis not me but other members of our group in working with nano satellite platforms and uh, looking at uh, how you will study microbes in space, uh, their performance in space and um, so that we can use that data as we move towards applications.
0: Yeah, you mentioned um, studying microbes in space, and we've talked about it a little bit, but can you just kind of spell out what the advantages are of growing algae in space, and how can the study uh, of microbes help with future space missions?
1: Well, uh, microbes uh, and microalgae could uh, provide a lot of benefits from being a food source to producing uh, bioplastics or pharmaceuticals, and they also have the benefit that they can use wastewater, uh, urea, and such uh, as a nutrient source, and also take up CO two and produce oxygen. So they they have a lot of uh, possible benefits. Um, things are different in space, though, as far as uh, diffusion and um, convective flow, and microgravity and radiation. So as we get better at using these microbes on Earth, we have to also be studying if we can get those same applications, those same uh, functionalities in space platforms where the environment is a little bit different. And it might take um, a surveying of many different species to see which are best adapted to that. The other possibility is doing a slow adaptation that uh, as microbes are up there, they will start to adapt to that environment. In fact, Um, There's some talk about International Space Station, all the microbes up there that have been thriving for years have uh, probably undergone some sort of adaptation and that we should be studying studying those.
0: Is that where the the space, is it space PAM technology comes in as far as measuring um, the efficiency of the photosynthesis in different environments?
1: Oh, yeah, um, That is um, something developed by Brad Spiebout and Eric Fleming in our group, uh, in conjunction with um, Tony Rico of the uh, nanosatellite group, and uh, folks unlike Uli Schreiber at Vald's company in Germany, which was the originator of that technology. And so what our group has done is worked with them and adapted that for space platforms. Um, and. Wonder, though what's nice about that is that you can non invasively survey a cell and tell what proportion of the light um, that is hitting it is going into production of chemical energy versus how much is um, being um, just dispensed as fluorescent, uh, non usable. And if the cell is uh, stressed in any way, it will very quickly lower its photosynthetic efficiency. Um, If it's stressed by low nutrients or radiation damage or something like that, you could quickly see that. And as it recovers, you can non-invasively see that the cells are are healthy. So it's a really quick monitor uh, for that.
0: How does microbial research impact uh, atmospheric studies? Can you talk about some of the work as it relates to the atmosphere
1: yeah that is not my particular expertise and I can refer you to other people but I can give you that the nutshell version Uh is that we'll be looking in far off atmospheres for um, the balance between certain gases like hydrogen oxygen water vapor and other gases like methane basically you would expect a certain composition suite if you had only chemical processes going on when things come to equilibrium there's a certain uh, proportion you would expect and if that if there's a, a biological driver in the system like we have on earth where they're getting sunlight they're going to be tweaking those um, the balance of those different molecules in ways that don't make sense from a purely chemical basis. So, so that is where you kind of can get an indicator that there might be another process going on.
0: Mm-hmm. And will this kind of work be applicable to Mars missions as well?
1: Well, not, some, well, for the atmosphere, people have been looking for, for trace amounts of methane um, and trying to decipher what is going on there. Um, but with Mars, I think the additional big component there is to look for what we call organic biomarkers, mm-hmm. um, which are remnants of uh, cell walls or cell parts in the sediment, or some of the minerals that might be influenced by microbes being there. And as far as the methane, um, there are folks in our group who are also looking at the isotopes of the methane produced in extreme environments like Chile and and, um, hypersaline environments in Mexico, because the um, isotopes can give you an indication whether that methane is formed by biological means or chemical means, such as volcanic uh, emissions. So it would be good to get um, a good idea that you could remotely sense uh, that. And then that also can have uh, impacts on monitoring, uh, satellite monitoring of um, Earth's atmosphere to kind of look at methane balances. that's a pretty important greenhouse gas. And um, our group has tied in a little bit with the Earth Sciences Group uh, to help at least once with uh, ground testing for the JAXA satellite to look at methane hotspots. So that's kind of neat because you're looking at the, the Earth from this mega uh, level in space with the satellites going over and looking at the gas emissions and then going down to the intermediate level that you can do with UAVs and then getting to the ground level and think what is the actual biological versus chemical uh, geological signal and interpret that data for the satellites so that they can better interpret uh, when they're doing the monitoring.
0: Mm-hmm. One technology that seemed really interesting to me too, and I was uh, hoping you could talk about it a bit, is uh, robo-algae. And can you talk about what that is and how it came about?
1: Yeah, uh, robo-algae is something that we came up when we were talking to all of these commercial growers, mostly in Imperial Valley, um, some in Hawaii, some other local ones. Um, But raising algae for biofuels is rather new. But there have been people raising large algae farms for nutraceuticals like spirulina or um, beta-carotene for for decades. So we went to those growers because they really know how to manage uh, large operations and asked where their bottlenecks were to becoming more productive or going to a larger scale. And most of those operations, they know exactly what they're doing, they know what to expect from the cells and what to watch for. And they will sample those systems and get their data back in hours to uh, a couple of days to get their analysis back, which will tell them if they need to uh, change a mixing rate or add a different nutrient and to optimize the system. One of the problems for large operations is that things grow so fast and change so fast. The analogy. not a great one, but what I try to use is, imagine you had 50 acres of tomato plants, but those tomato plants went from seed to full tomatoes in four days. And if something came in like a pest, it could wipe you out in a matter of hours. And that's basically what is the situation with with algae for fuel crops. It's a highly Dynamic environment is affected by the weather and things blowing in, and you need to be able to, to, to monitor that more quickly in real time so that you can head off problems, or if it's a, a situation where you, you can't fix it, then you need to know early on whether to, to crash the system, clean up, and start again, rather than waste that. So. This is the feedback we got from commercial growers. So, what we looked at was technologies like the um, PAM that we were developing for satellites and other remote sensing, and developed the roboalgae concept, which is to be a very cheap uh, and small uh, wireless measuring device that you could design, design with various sensors that would float through these commercial tanks, raceways give you a lot of data, not from just one section of uh, of your growth system, but move through the system and give you data from a lot of different areas so that the growers can more quickly see what's going on in their ponds. And then we did a little bit of work with uh, Kai Gobel in the intelligent uh, systems branch. Um, a little preliminary work that we'd like to follow up on would be to develop uh, prognostic algorithms, so that we could use that data and get that to the grower. Um, because these, these um, larger operations for biofuels are newer than those other crops, and there's still a lot of unknowns. What you want to do is be able to head off uh, problems down the line, and that's what uh, NASA Prognostics is very good at. And so that's where we hope uh, that could go. So one level is to just get the, the information to the grower quickly, and the second is to maybe start to build these prognostic algorithms. Because um, for you know large scale operations, you don't want to have to have a degree in psychology to figure out. We don't you don't have that luxury, so you want to kind of build that into the system to make it uh, user friendly.
0: Sure. And Is that technology in use currently?
1: <laughs> no, we just. Uh, of that patent was awarded and uh, we are hoping to uh, find some partners to start using those and getting further further in field testing and um, we would love to see that take off
0: what other opportunities exist in the microbial uh, ecology field and kind of what gets you excited about the work and the future of this field
1: um, I I just feel like there are So many opportunities, um, and for me as an ecologist, um, it's kind of exciting to see some um, a systems biology approach where you look at the environment and the microbes together. For example, um, right now one of the, the Typical methods for raising um, algae in raceways is to uh, link it up to a coal-fired plant or another power plant to bubble in CO2, because actually CO2 becomes limiting very quickly uh, as the light comes on. The cells use it all up, and you're having to force CO2 into the system. And it's good to use those sources. That means you're using your your carbon twice, but one of the um, tantalizing things about algae is people say, well, that's going to help us with CO2 levels in the atmosphere. But if you're using fossil fuel CO2 to to feed your algae, then you're not getting to that second level. So I think it's good to do those, but I think another way to do is, like we're doing with our colleagues at the University of Texas Austin, is growing systems that are attached to substrates and have a thin water film, and that way they can pull CO2 directly from the atmosphere rather than having to pay for CO2 to be bubbled in, and using far less water, because water is a, a very precious commodity, and uh, we've been excited about this uh, surface-attached benthic reactor uh, system uh, that we have the patent application in on because it's been shown under best-case conditions to grow algae up to four times faster using 25 times less water. Um, that's of interest for Space Station because mass is, is a huge consideration, um, but we would like to see if that could also be useful in, for terrestrial applications for those same reasons. So th- in that case, it would be a, a question of, of whether we could get it to the appropriate scale. But thinking that way about being more economical with our, our CO2 and our water. Um, it will optimize uh, for the cells and uh, and conserve resources, and so that's, that's a perfect example to me of where understanding the biology and working with um, engineers to optimize that could have um, uh, some really beneficial uses.